You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. This is the second part of our interview with retired Lieutenant Colonel Dan Gade. In the first episode, Dan discussed the deaths of two of his soldiers to enemy action in Ramadi in 2004. In this episode, Dan describes the wounding shortly thereafter that took him out of company command and altered his course in the Army. After the November 10th battle with the death of Private First Class Miller, what was your operational tempo? Uh, same basically. So every day we would have, we had a big long, um, stretch of the main supply route that we had to guard for against IEDs. So we had a series of set checkpoints that we, uh, would have combat vehicles on scanning the road, making sure nobody's putting in IEDs cause there was constantly supply convoys and civilian traffic and stuff going through there. So that was a, that was a, something we had to do. And then we would send out patrols, uh, to, try to disrupt enemy activity in the, in the, um, civilian areas, in the cities, in the towns sort of adjacent to that main supply route. And then I was doing quite a lot of tribal engagement. And so when I was doing tribal engagement, I would take my Humvee out. And when I was doing, when I was on the, when I was on the main supply route, I would take my, uh, take my tank. And so really no change. I mean, we did, we did quite, we did some direct action stuff where we do either platoon or company size raids and um, some ambush patrolling and some cordon and cordon and search kind of activity where either a company or the battalion like has outer cordon and blocks off a section of area. And then you have to search all the houses in that area. Um, Really a pretty, and then tribal engagement and tribal engagement was the most dangerous kind of stuff that we did because it was small units, small patrols out two or three trucks at a time out meeting with different shakes. On the day that I got hurt the second time, which was January 10th, uh, 05, I'd led a patrol out. Uh, we had, we had, we had had a meeting engagement with some enemy a couple days before in that same area and killed a couple of them, killed one at least, I think two, cause I think one was wounded and ran off. Um, but then wounded and captured a different guy. And so, so we, we disrupted some kind of enemy cell in this particular area. And so I was trying to exploit that by meeting with the tribal shakes and saying, Hey, unless you want your guys to keep getting killed, you need to like, you know, either keep them from fighting us or give us Intel. So if they're outsiders, we can go kill them. I had met with a couple of guys that day and, um, we're, I'm in the lead Humvee in a four or five Humvee column. And we're, um, we're going down this road and 
my last thought actually was like, this seems like kind of a dangerous area because it was a raised canal road. It's bright sunshine. The shoulders are dirt. Like it's perfect for IEDs. And then the next thing I know I'm on my back in the ditch. What happened? Uh, a small IED went off basically directly underneath me um, in my Humvee. So the reason I know it's a small IED, everybody likes to exaggerate how big the IEDs are. They're like, oh yeah, it was a triple stack anti-tank mine. It's like, how do you even know that if the thing got blown into pieces? Um, the reason I know mine was a small one is because uh, it didn't even flatten the tires on the truck. The Humvee had, the Humvee's front and back tires were intact. And the only thing wrong with the Humvee was that the door was sort of hanging off its hinges and the uh, radios were destroyed and the commander's seat, which is unfortunately where I was sitting was destroyed. And like, so basically explosive force and dirt and shrapnel and other stuff, weather stripping from the Humvee door came up through the, in between where the door and the body of the Humvee are came up through that area, through the seat into my body. And, um, when I woke up in the ditch, my soldiers were, um, uh, I, I lifted my head to, I lifted my head and, and they were like, relax, sir, you're the only one. And they pushed me back down and I could see when I lifted my head, I could see my body armor was all blown open. I could see my guts, but they were working on my legs. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> you know, this is not great. So my battalion XO was holding my hand and talking to me and trying to keep me out of shock and all this stuff because he was in the truck right behind me coincidentally he didn't normally come out but that day he decided to but they're treating my legs and i, I said to him i said sir i gotta ask you something he's like yeah anything i was like you gotta be honest he's like yeah anything i go are my balls okay and he goes he goes i don't know man let me check and so he goes down to where my pants are blown open he, and he comes back up to where my head is and he goes yeah dude they're dusty but they look good to me so so that was my, uh, that was my, that's kind of my little moment of levity in the, uh, in the ditch there. But, but I was obviously very seriously wounded. I had a, uh, the, it looked like somebody had taken a muddy football and shoved it directly through my thigh. So I was missing a big section of bone from the femur, uh, the femoral artery and vein were both severed. The, uh, the nerve, the nerve, the big nerve in your leg was actually intact, but, um, but damaged. And then there was just tons and tons of soft tissue damage. And, the surgeon told me that they picked out a piece of frag that was like a pound, like a big, huge chunk of metal. They picked out some weather stripping from the Humvee's door, they, all this dirt, and they're just cutting away dead tissue and all this stuff. But what was really cool about it, when I got to the surgical station, it, it was a Marine Corps helicopter that picked me up. And when I got to the surgical station, my blood pressure was 60 over zero. And it was a Navy surgical station. So they gave me um, all the A-positive blood they had stored. And it wasn't enough. And so they went to the mess hall and they said, hey, if you've got a positive blood, we could use your help. And 25 sailors and Marines lined up and donated their blood, put onto the IV pole fresh from the donor, like still literally still warm from the donor. And it went into my body and it saved my life. And I think there's a real lesson about unity and sacrifice. And and uh, the Bible says no greater love have any man than, than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. And we all have heard that phrase many times. But you know, actually donating your blood to save somebody's life who's otherwise going to die is pretty a pretty awesome way to lay down your life for your friends. And the, and those guys did that for me. And I've only I haven't met all of them. I've met a few of them over the years, but pretty uh, pretty phenomenal self sacrifice. 
while you're in the hospital, did you hear from your soldiers? Everybody was very, very busy because there's still a fight, right? There was still lots and lots and lots of enemy contact. There's still tons of stuff going on. Uh, the soldiers did reach out to me. Uh, I've heard stories that they that they think they eventually caught the IED team or killed, caught or killed. I'm not sure which, but the IED team that put in my particular IED. But and there was kind of a, a nice sense of revenge or sense of justice that they got out of doing that. Um, I'm not sure that's probably true. I, I think it, things were so chaotic there that it's hard to tell which IED team it would have even been. But the bottom line is that they were deeply concerned about me, but they were also still in the fight. And so when something like that happens, when a leader gets struck down, they had to keep soldiering. The new leader had to keep leading. The new company commander had to do that. And and so probably a lot of them just try to try to not think about me very often because if they think about their company commander who a war like like Iraq was back then, the company commander is sort of like this godlike figure, you know, like you never see the battalion commander because he's out doing other things and and so the company commander is the most senior officer with with whom you interact a lot. And if I can get hurt, they can definitely get hurt. And so they're like, oh, shit, you know, it's probably easier for them to just try to forget about me than to dwell on it. But that said, uh, one of the nicest things that anybody's ever said to me, one of my soldiers reached out, you know, glad this was like by the summer of 05, probably. And he said, glad you're doing OK, blah, blah, blah. I'm glad you're going to live, that kind of stuff. But he said, sir, I just want to let you know that we hated you in Korea but we loved you in Iraq. And that's a pretty high compliment for a combat leader. Like if they hate you in training, but they love you in combat, that means that you're being hard on them in training. You're doing the right things, even though they don't want to do those things. And that when they get to combat, they realize, oh, oh, wow. All that hard stuff we did in training is actually paying off and helping us keep alive. While you're in the hospital, what's going through your head? Uh, there was a there was a time when when I f I was out of the I was un, I was unconscious for three weeks ish plus plus pretty high like real high for the next like two months and when I first became conscious and knew that I had lost my leg at the hip and that I had all these other injuries and I I mean I had nerve damage I couldn't move my hands I. My left leg was in pain and had a big open wound on it. And I mean, I was, I was just really, really sick. But I was just mostly struck by how grateful I was to be alive. I wasn't so much thinking about long-term disability. I was thinking more like, I'm just glad to be alive. My wife was phenomenal during that time. We'd been married uh, five years, five and a half years. We had a two-year-old daughter. And they really were instrumental in my recovery because my wife, my wife said something to me, which was phenomenal. She said, she said, listen, you know, this was after I was conscious again, obviously, but she said, I'm going to take care of our family. I'm going to do everything. I'll take care of our daughter. I'll take care of our bills, I'll, all of it. But as soon as you're able, you're the leader of our family and it's your responsibility to lead us. So you need to get better. And then you can be the leader again. Cause I'm not doing it. And I was like, perfect. For men especially, we get our identity from our work. And women women are blessed by getting identity from multiple sources. Men primarily get their identity from their work. And so all of a sudden, my work had been stripped away. I wasn't a company commander anymore, and I was barely a soldier. But her sending that message to me that, that I was required by 
by our contract, you know, by our social contract, our marriage, that I was required to to recover to the maximum extent and then lead my family again. That's pretty powerful stuff. And that was a, a key moment and a key impetus in my eventual uh, thriving. Listening to that part there certainly sounded and reminded me of uh, Brene Brown talking about identity and shame and guilt. And we've talked about the death of two of your soldiers. We've talked about your wounding. Was there survivor guilt on your end? No. Um, and interestingly, no, no PTSD either. I don't have bad dreams. I don't have startle reactions, any of that stuff either. And I don't know really why except to say that I've always felt strongly that God has a plan for all of us and he's got a plan for our lives. And so my deployment, the sacrifices that our soldiers made, the sacrifice that I made personally, I always felt pretty strongly that those things were in God's hands and that our job was to do our best within those boundaries, within the boundaries we were given and then let the chips fall. The only, I mean, with both of my soldiers, if, if I was, if we took my 46 year old self and we made me into a 29 year old, um, again, both of those soldiers died because of orders I had either given or not given. Right. But that's the nature of command. So when Tyler was getting ready to lead his patrol, the reason they were, he was on this overpass when he was shot. And the reason he was on the overpass, is that's where the checkpoint was. And the reason he was at the checkpoint was because he was getting ready to lead a foot patrol into the, into this little uh, dense housing urban ish area, which is probably where the enemy fighter saw him and shot him from, you know, I, I had given the timing for that mission and we were going to start the mission right at dark. He, you know, and darkness is, has a certain kind of concealment all its own and that's great. And whatever, but if I had given the commands a start three hours earlier, then the sniper wouldn't have been in position. And, and if I three hours later, it would have been, you know, but that's not, I mean, the, the fault is mine 100%, but also 0%. You know, the fact that the medevac took longer than it should was the fault of us being Un, under trained by our training regime in Korea and being brand new to sector, you know? Um, and then in the case of private Miller, that's a much closer case to me because he was my loader. You know, if I had said, if I had said the, t the following two words, he would be alive. And the two words are load heat, because if I'd said load heat, he would have heard that. And his job would have been to drop down into the turret, grab a heat round, load it into the main gun, and then the gunner would have had a heat round that he could have fired. Heat stands for high explosive anti-tank. He could have fired it at the bad guys, at this little cluster of bad guys. And just the shock and awe, to borrow a phrase, of the, of the main gun going off at night is so phenomenally overwhelming if you've never seen it before that it definitely would have made the enemy, you know, duck or cover or thrown off the aim of the RPG gunner or whatever it was, but I didn't say load heat. I, you know, I failed to say that. And, and so therefore Dennis was out of the hatch. He was shoulder 
shoulder high in the hatch or or neck high in the hatch and the 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 rocket hit him and killed him so it's all my fault it's all my responsibility for sure but i'm not sure whether fault assigns or whether fault attains to to me and i don't i don't think it does and so i don't i don't really um i don't blame myself for their death and i don't feel guilt for it i do feel responsibility i think i think guilt is the guilt is almost i would say guilt is a perversion of responsibility because as a commander you're you're definitely responsible but guilt is guilt is a selfish emotion um and I'm, because because guilt is is putting yourself at the center of of all of that and saying oh woe is me like if you're feeling guilt you're saying woe is me if you're feeling responsibility you're saying I, as the commander, am responsible, but I'm not going to wallow in the woe is me part, which is where the guilt comes in. So, no, uh, in my case, and I, I. After you spent your time in the ICU, your time high, what happened to your Army career? By, by spring of, of 05, so by April ish, I was still in the hospital, but it was clear I was going to live. And I. I was pretty sure I was going to get out. Like I'd, I'd basically decided I was going to get out of the army at this point. My boss, uh, my division commander came to see me and this was a new guy. I didn't know him. His name is general Higgins and general Higgins came to see me and his aide was actually one of my classmates, which is kind of fun. But they came to see me and, and he said, Hey Dan, are you done serving? Or no, he said, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, sir, I'm getting out. He said, why are you, are you done serving or what? And I was sort of like, well, what do you, you know, like, what do you mean? You know, he's like, well, do you want to get out? And at that moment, my wife describes it like the, my lights, my, the, the light behind my eyes have been pretty dim for a while. And she describes it as the moment when the lights came back on. And that's when I, that's basically when I decided I wanted to stay in the army because I already had a follow on assignment to teach at West Point. The army had made it clear to me at this point that even though I was going to obviously have a significant, you know, disqualifying condition and that I only had one leg, that they would be happy to have me continue in the army. And I was already a senior post command captain. I'd, I'd commanded a company for two years. And so the opportunity for me to stay in was still there. And so I was like, oh, wait, yeah, maybe I should do that. And so, so I ended up a year to the day of after I got hurt, actually, on January 10th, 2006. I started my master's degree preparation for going back to West Point to teach. And then at the end of my master's in summer of 07, I got a call from the White House. Hey, can you come to the White House and do domestic policy for for veterans in the Bush administration? I said, of course I can. Yes. And then I went back and got my PhD. And then by the time I got to West Point, it was summer of 2011. That was kind of fun. And then I ended up teaching at West Point for about six years until I retired as a lieutenant colonel with 20 years of service. I want to go back to your relationship with that staff sergeant that stepped up. You obviously maintain a connection with him, with some of your fellow soldiers. What are some of the leadership lessons that you've passed to them post-company command? He was he was a young staff sergeant. I don't think he'd been even in the Army more than a couple of years at that point. And he was just a great leader. He did a great job of leading up too. So there was this one experience I had where, where I'd been pretty hard on the guys, uh, on the soldiers and, and had begun to notice some sort of 
like some pushback and some cracks and I didn't quite understand what was going on. And I, I asked him one night and I'll never forget. It's pouring rain outside. We're sitting in the Humvee and we're getting ready to deploy. And, and, uh, I said, Hey, you know, I'm noticing all this stuff, blah, blah, you're new to the company. What is, what's the problem around here? And this is the leading up thing that I think is so critical. He looked at me straight in the face and remember, I mean, maybe I seem very nice on this podcast. Um, and definitely as a 29 year old company commander, I was a pretty straight lace, kind of a hard ass, you know? And, and a lot of soldiers probably were, you know, fearful of that. When you have a company commander who's a tough guy, that's, that's can be kind of scary. And so, so he had every reason to lie to me, but he, he chose not to. And he said, he said, and I'll never forget it. He looks at me, he looked at me across the, he was sitting in the driver's seat of the Humvee. He looked at me across the radio mount there and he goes, he goes, sir, do you really want to know? And I'm like, yeah, I, I really want to know. And he goes, he goes, sir, you're the problem. And at that point, I was at a fork in the road leadership wise, because I could either, I could have said, well, that's bull crap. You suck. You know, you're just stupid and you know, whatever you're believing all the lies that soldiers are telling you, or I could have done what I did, which was say, wow, uh, tell me more. And so he did, he told me some stuff that he observed and stuff like that. That was, that was, uh, suboptimal. And then I had to decide what to do with all of that. Um, knowing that my soldiers were feeling some resentment, knowing that my soldiers were irritated about some things like, how do you, how do you lead through that? So what I decided to do was, and I'm really proud of this. It was, it was a great exercise, although it, it took a lot of, uh, I said, I was really proud of it. It took a lot of humility to do this. And I had to eat a lot of crow on this deal. But, uh, anyway, so, so I said, okay, tomorrow morning, this is late at night. So tomorrow morning, I want all those, uh, I don't want the soldiers and I don't want the lieutenants. I want the sergeants, right? If you're a corporal all the way up to platoon sergeants, that's who I want. I assembled them all. There's like this little grassy slope thing. And I, I had a chair and they were sitting on the grass and I said, okay, guys, check it out. Here's what we're, so they were over me. It was like an amphitheater kind of thing. I said, all right, fellas, here's the deal. I know that some of you guys have some things to say to me. I want you to tell me everything, everything I've done that's wrong, everything I've done that's effed up, all of it. I want you to tell me everything. And if I have any questions or clarifications or comments, I'll raise my hand. And if you want to hear from me, let me know. And they're like, cool. And so they just start to unload on me, dude. They're like, you did this and sir, you're blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and on a couple of occasions, I would raise my hand and they'd say, yes, sir. And I would say, well, okay, so let me help you understand the context here. You know, like, let's say, let's say they're mad about, you know, we, the training, the training plan said we were deploying on Monday, or we're going to, well, let's say we're going to gunnery on Monday. And I told everybody we're going to gunnery on Monday. And then all of a sudden I changed the rules and we're going to gunnery the Friday before, and that takes away a whole weekend. And they wanted to go out and, and drink beers and whatever. Right. So they're, they're pissed about like training schedule stuff. Okay. Well, that's something I can raise my hand on and say, all right, fellas, check it out. So, so the reason we did that was because the battalion commander told me, Hey, you're changing your deployment forward to gunnery from Monday to Friday, ready to go. And what I'm not going to do to my soldiers is say, hey, the stupid battalion commander is making me do stuff. I'm going to say, hey, we're doing this. It's my order. I'm going to own the orders that my bosses give me, you know, like that kind of stuff, the basic leadership stuff. You don't pass complaints down, but they didn't know that. And so they just thought I was being a you know, a jerk. And so when I clarified that for them, they were like, Oh, okay, that makes sense. And, and so there's some stuff like that. And those, those kinds of things were resolved pretty quickly. The, the ones that weren't as obvious were ones where 
as as somebody you know company commander has just big feet right and you're walking around you're like stomping on people and you don't even know you're stomping on people like you might stomp on a private you don't even know you're stomping on them because you're you're doing other things you're busy the whatever and you don't even know you hurt somebody you don't know that your actions had a negative effect on somebody maybe you made some snide comment to somebody like there's one case where a soldier had gotten like a we our company was famous for its for its pt like we did pt like i love to work out and i do workouts and and i wanted a pt average across the company of 270 or above on a 300 point scale and by the way infantry companies in the brigade had pt scores of like 240 tank companies had pt scores of like 210 my soldiers like that's impossible. That's stupid. You you're stupid. And I'm like, actually, no, we're going to do it. And I set up all these incentives, and we did all this extra training. And pretty soon, our company had like we're pretty famous for PT. We had zero failures, a PT average of I think the highest we got it was like 283, which was awesome. I mean, it was it was great. We're we're awesome at PT. But anyway, so we did this PT test, and the soldier comes running up to me after the test. He's like, sir, sir, I got a 240, and I'm like. And I, I it, again, I don't know why I would say something like this other than just I was maybe I was thinking about something else. Maybe I was. But I go, well, the standard is 270, dude. What I don't know what I did. I don't remember the incident. I was just told about it later, but maybe I just walked away, you know, and that's not taking into account the real story, which is that the soldier had just taken a PT test a month before and barely passed. He'd gotten like a 190. And so this this 240 represented a massive improvement. And what I should have done is hugged him and said, hey, congratulations, brother. That's freaking awesome. Well done. You know, you're pulling your weight. Let's keep going. But I didn't. Instead, I was like kind of a like casually kind of a, a jerk to this guy. And there was other incidents like that. I mean, whatever. I mean, that's a pretty bad one. But there was other stuff like that. And so when you do something that like that as a leader, and this and this is the point of this story, when they were telling me, they're sitting across and they're telling me this stuff. And I'm just, it's hot. It's Korea in the summer. And I'm just sweating, you know. And plus, it's stressful to be in that vulnerable position. But I'm, I'm just dripping, you know. And they're like, sir, you did this. And, sir, you did this. and, and so... Sir, you did this. The only possible response, and for sure the best response, is the one that I chose to do in that case, which was to just apologize. The seven most powerful words in the English language are, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And when a leader says to us, when a captain says to a private, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? That's really, really powerful. You know, humility is very attractive in a leader. And so what, what that event and that experience did for me, like it really, uh, you know, it lanced the boil. You know, there had been this sort of festering discontent in the unit. And then when Sergeant Flowers told me about it, and when I was able to lead the soldiers through it and apologize where necessary and contextualize where necessary, we came out of that with a whole new level of trust. Dan, thanks for wrapping up that way. And thanks for being on The Spear. Great. I uh, loved it. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. 
Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.